3: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 260. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Computer is fixed, yes. Take it took it down. If you know, last week I couldn't really do a full show, I just had to put a, a story on that was already like pre recorded. Put the way keyboard and mouse weren't working, and took it down if anyone's interested to the Apple Genius store. And lo and behold, the keyboard wasn't working, something had been spilt on the keyboard. So Apple kindly replaced the keyboard and the mouse. Do you know, just there you go, you can have them. and. Well, he he kind of was going down the track of, you know, chemical cleaning, you know, sprays, cleaning. So it certainly wasn't me, put it that way. But I've told people, keep off my computer. So we are now back up and running, full, full steam ahead. And with the full steam ahead, we have full rain as well. What another miserable day. We have had the, excuse the French the crappiest weather this year. Oh, man. It's just, again, pouring down. We've got a, one of the windows in the kitchen and we've got these one of these big concrete lintels, you know, which above the window, they kind of keep all the bricks up safe and everything. They're, it's split and it's just pouring in there. So we've got to get builders in to pull the window out. And Oh, man. Do you know what I mean? I hate anything like that. Costing us money. <laughs> anyway, I tell you what's coming in today's show. Two hundred and sixty. We have Gaming the Future with new that's the new article by Simon Hindebrand. Then we have the main fiction, The Day the Earth Stop moving? by Bradna Buckner. Now, this is going, This is a, a golden only from 1940. So I just thought I'd kind of slip that one in there, play that one. Then right at the end, we have First Chapters by Dennis Lane, The Pouring Dark. And Dennis, is, Dennis as you know, does the film talk. And actually, Dennis will be up next week as well with his section on film talk. So that is... That's the show. Now, just before we get into the show, I want to give a little shout out to Sister Show of Starship Sofa now, Protecting Project Pulp. Fred emailed us the other day and says, would it be possible to, would it be possible to, just to give a shout out to their show number 14, which is a special one by the author. Because Protecting Project Pulp is, is also going to dip into new Pulp fiction stories, you know, stories that have been wrote in the modern day. And haven't I got one by Tim Powers? Now, trust us when I say it, I have tried my bollocks off to get a Tim Powers story. And you get introduced. Larry introduced us once through emails, you know, and I was chatting on with Tim. And fine, yeah, yeah, your yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, story, right? Oh, I don't know about, you know. And right through Starship's over's history, do you know what I mean? Odd times I've kind of, Well, I'm, this time I'm going to. And here, I've never been able to. And they've got one up there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. So, I put a link on to that particular show of Protecting Project Pulpit showing them number 14 Tim Powers. Wow, how cool is that? So, anyway, enough of, enough of that. Let's get on to the day's show. First off is Gaming the Future, Simon, sir.
0: Hi, my name's Simon Hildebrandt, and welcome to Gaming the Future where we explore the intersection of great games and great science fiction. This episode, I'll be talking about the Homeworld franchise, three titles that showed gamers that serious strategy and serious story aren't mutually exclusive. Relic Entertainment are famous for delivering world-class, distinctive strategy games, and the Homeworld titles are no exception. They've shown that they can do remarkable work in other people's franchises. I think their Dawn of War games capture Games Workshop's Warhammer 40,000 universe better than anyone else's attempts. But Homeworld One is where it all started for Relic. This vibrant, ambitious game with its rich, unique science fiction setting was Relic's very first title and it's set a new benchmark that few subsequent games have surpassed. Incidentally, Warhammer 40K is my favourite gonzo science fiction universe, and I hope to get to the games it's inspired in a future article. In technical terms, then, the Homeworld series are real-time strategy games, requiring players to navigate through space, gather resources, build a fleet of ships, and then send that fleet into battle. Two main things make these games unique, though. Firstly, Homeworld 1 is considered to be the first truly three-dimensional game of this type, and secondly, the ships in a Homeworld fleet can vary dramatically in size, from tiny fighters to gargantuan capital ships. These are both deceptively simple ideas that have serious playability ramifications, so let's explore them one at a time. Full 3D games are notoriously difficult to do well. The Descent games, for example, are famous for giving players motion sickness due to the disorienting perspective. And if freeform 3D navigation is confusing, controlling a whole fleet in a 3D battlefield is challenging, to say the least. That's why the vast majority of similar strategy games, StarCraft or Command & Conquer, for example, take place on simple 2D terrain, and even then the flying units can't really travel up or down. Homeworld deals with this problem in two ways. Firstly, through a suite of clear, simple, easy-to-use controls, and secondly, by introducing the player to those controls slowly and thoroughly in a dedicated section of the tutorial. Those tutorials also cover the broad variety of ships available and how each class operates, and there's plenty to learn. The game centers around one enormous capital ship, referred to as your mothership. Resource refinery, shipyard, hangar, your mothership is all of these things. At the other end of the scale are simple resource collectors and small fighters, all built by your mothership and housed inside it between missions. As you expand your fleet, though, you quickly research larger tactical vehicles like cruisers and corvettes until finally warping in specialised space dock infrastructure for building the largest and most powerful capital ships. The epic sense of scale when helming one of these fleets is definitely one of this franchise's main selling points. But while they are very polished game experiences, what really keeps me coming back is the visual artistry and storytelling. Firstly, the cinematics. Done with a unique animatic style and brought to life, like the rest of the game, with a haunting soundtrack, we're introduced to a rich and original science fiction universe. Here's how the story of the first game begins.
1: One hundred years ago, a satellite detected an object under the sands of the great desert. An expedition was sent.
0: The discovery turns out to be an ancient starship, and the technology extracted from it sets its discoverers on an epic journey, to pour the resources of their whole civilization into building a huge mothership, and traveling in it to Hegara, their ancient homeworld. The destruction of their current planet, Karak, the ensuing conflict with its destroyers, the Tidan, the appearance of the Bantusi, a mysterious and ancient alien race, and the hunt to solve a millennia-old puzzle are all components of a rich and engaging plot. These cutscenes are truly cinematic, and the writing is excellent. Dedicated fans have even pointed out subtle references to biblical stories and to Homer's Odyssey. The subsequent games expand on this narrative. The expansion Cataclysm takes place 15 years after the events of Homeworld, as a Hegaran tribe called the Keith Somtau struggle to protect Hegara from a parasitic entity known as the Beast. And the sequel Homeworld 2 pits the Hegarans against a powerful nomadic raider race called the Vagar. For me, though, the greatest reward of these games comes from their in-game environments. Few games can boast such lush and atmospheric soundtracks, and it's perfectly complemented by the stunning visuals. Vistas of glowing clouds, the ruins of ancient civilizations, and vast celestial landscapes provide a lovely background to your ever-growing fleet. And the fleets look great, too, drawing inspiration from classic sci-fi artists like Chris Foss and Peter Elson gives the game a timeless elegance that, personally, reminds me of the 70s covers of Isaac Asimov's foundation novels that so captured my imagination and drew me into those books. To conclude, there's plenty of games that I've enjoyed, and plenty of sci-fi stories I've felt drawn into, but the Homeworld series represents the only games I've ever really felt caught up in and moved by in a way I normally only associate with great films or books. These games are true hybrids, cinematic and narrative experiences on par with science fiction in any media. And for fans of top-shelf strategy games or just gamers who love space opera, the Homeworld series has a tremendous amount to offer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time to explore the games inspired by Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel, Dune. Our music is by Cheap Shot from the album Streets of Bass used with permission. Links to that and everything else I've mentioned in the show notes.
3: There you go, Simon. Thank you so much. And it's weird, you know, like with Simon, you know, and games and it's weird how I've drifted, is that the best way, drifted out of games? You know, because I wasn't a heavy gamer, but I still had that excitement in there. But now it's all back in there, full throttle, with my son, you know, kind of coming in there, and he's 11-year-old there now, and just obsessed, you know, with the Xbox and games and everything like that. And the, they're there at the moment in this... for couple of months there now Himley's friends have just been minecraft daft do you know what i mean it's just all that's their whole kind of waking life is minecraft at the minute anyway moving on simon thank you so much I put a link on to simon please pop over there and say hello as well and simon another one please sir next up is the main fiction the dirty the day the earth stopped moving by bradner buckner now there's not much i can tell you by bradner buckner This story actually came out in Amazing Stories, October 1940, which was edited by Raymond A. Palmer from Ziff Davis Publishing Company. It was then played again, or then published again in Amazing Stories, April 1956. And then in 1970, it came out in the Science Fiction Adventures Yearbook, number one. Then Project Gutenberg published it in 2008. And LibriVox have also done a recording of it in January 2009. Bradnar Bucknar is the pseudonym for Ed Earl Rep, who was born in 1900 and died February 14th, 1979. His first short story, The Radium Pool, appeared in 1929, and his last one was 1950, Keelon of the Golden Sun. He's also had out quite a body of short stories, The Sky Ruler, 1930, 1935, Body Pirate, I mean, I'm just dipping into these, City of Oblivion, 1939. He wrote one, two, I'm just looking on the internet science fiction database, he wrote four stories under the name Bradner Buckner. The link to Wikipedia says, Ed Earl Rep, Nineteen 19- oh. Well it says 1901 Wikipedia, was an American writer, screenwriter and novelist. His stories appeared in several of the early pulp magazines, including Air Wonder Stories, Science wonder stories and amazing stories. After World War Two, began working as a screenwriter for several Western movies. This story is narrated by Jeff Lane, and I think Jeff's coming up next week as well on Protecting Project Pulp. I had uh, did I say that right there? I had Fred Emile is asking for Jeff's bio there, so I thought I'd just play another one from Jeff Jeffrey Sir. Uh, Jeff Lane is the author of the novels This Paper World and One Way. A number of short stories and the forthcoming novella, Crush Depth. His podcast of his fiction at Jeff Lane Audiobooks, iTunes, and Podiobooks. He lives in New Hampshire with his wife and two children. When not allowing his dreams to flow through his fingers, he dabbles in the peanut butter and chocolate combination of the call center operations and training management. Oh, Jeff, man, get out of there, right? The classic. If you ever see Jeff running down the street, go, go with him if you want to live. Jeff- you know what gets me there call send operations and trade I bet Jeff every time you hit that key and put a word on the thing you're singing. I hope I get out of this bloody place not like you might like it I don't know what I hope you want to get out that's fantastic <laughs> oh my <God>. <laughs> sorry Jeff you know, I'm not having to cut this shit. i just... That's just the income and everything. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't be saying that, man. You keep keep working. You've got to support a family. Anyway. Oh, come on, man. Should pull it together? So the Starship Sova is, very proud to present, the Dear Time Spot... <laughs> I'm going to leave
4: it in, because i got to be blown to edit it out. Storch is very proud to present. The Day Time Stopped Moving by Bradner Buckner Dave Miller would never have done it, had he been in his right mind. The Millers were not a melancholy stock, hardly the sort of people you expect to read about in the morning paper, who have taken their lives the night before. But Dave Miller was drunk abominably, roaringly so, and the barrel of the big revolver, as he stood against the sink, made a ring of coldness against his right temple. Dawn was beginning to stain the frosty kitchen windows. In the faint light, the letter lay a gray square against the drainboard tiles. With the melodramatic gesture of the very drunk, Miller had scrawled across the envelope, This is why I did it. He had found Helen's letter in the envelope when he staggered into their bedroom fifteen minutes ago, at quarter after five. As had frequently happened during the past year, he'd come home from the store a little late. About twelve hours late, in fact. And this time, Helen had done what she had long threatened to do. She had left him. The letter was brief, containing a world of heartbreak and broken hopes. I don't mind having to scrimp Dave. No woman minds that if she feels she's really helping her husband over a rough spot. When business went bad a year ago, I told you I was ready to help in any way I could. But you haven't let me. You quit fighting when things got difficult and put in all your money and energy on liquor and horses and cards. I could stand being married to a drunkard, Dave, but not to a coward. So, she was trying to show him but Miller told himself he'd show her instead. Coward, eh? Maybe this would teach her a lesson. Hell of a lot of help she'd been. Nag at him every time he took a drink. Holler bloody murder when he put 25 bucks on a horse with a chance to make 500. What man wouldn't do those things? His store was on the skids. Could he be blamed for drinking a little too much? If alcohol dissolved the morbid vapors of his mind? Miller stiffened angrily and tightened his finger on the trigger. But he had one moment of frank insight just before the hammer dropped and brought the world tumbling about his ears. It brought with it a realization that the whole thing was his fault. Helen was right. He was a coward. There was a poignant ache in his heart. She'd been as loyal as they came. He knew that. He could have spent his nights thinking up new business tricks instead of swilling whiskey. Could have gone out of his way to be pleasant to customers, not snap at them when he had a terrific hangover. And even Miller knew nobody ever made any money on the horses, at least not when he needed it. But horses and whiskey And business had become tragically confused in his mind. So here he was, full of liquor and madness, with a gun to his head. Then, again, anger swept his mind clean of reason, and he threw his chin up and gripped the gun tight. Run out on me, will she? he muttered thickly. Well, this'll show her. In the next moment, the hammer fell. And Dave Miller had shown her. Miller opened his eyes with a start. As plain as black on white, he heard a bell ring. The most familiar sound in the world, too. It was the unmistakable tinkle of his cash register. Now, how in the hell... The thought began in his mind. And then he saw where he was. The cash register was right in front of him. It was open and on the marble slab lay a customer's five-spot. Miller's glance straight up and around him. He was behind the drug counter, all right. There was a man and a girl sipping Cokes at the fountain to his right, the magazine racks by the open door, the tobacco counter across from the fountain, and right before him was a customer. Good Lord, he thought. Was all this a... a dream? Sweat oozed out on his clammy forehead. That stuff of Herman's that he had drunk during the game, it had a rank taste, but he wouldn't have thought anything short of marijuana could produce such hallucinations as he had just had. Wild conjectures came boiling up from the bottom of Miller's being. How did he get behind the counter? Who was the woman he was waiting on? What? The woman's curious stare was what jarred him completely into the present. Get rid of her, was his one thought then sit down behind the scenes and try to figure it all out. His hand poised over the cash drawer. Then he remembered he didn't know how much he was to take out of the five. Avoiding the woman's glance, he muttered, uh, let's see, now, that was, uh, how much did I say? The woman made no answer. Miller cleared his throat, said uncertainly, <clears> throat> uh. I beg your pardon, ma'am, did I say seventy-five cents? It was just a feeler, but the woman didn't even answer to that. And it was right then that Dave Miller noticed the deep silence that brooded in the store. Slowly, his head came up, and he looked straight into the woman's eyes. She returned him a cool, half-smiling glance, but her eyes neither blinked nor moved. Her features were frozen, lips parted, teeth showing a little. The tip of her tongue was between her even white teeth, as though she had started to say, this, and stopped with the syllable unspoken. Muscles began to rise behind Miller's ears. He could feel his hair stiffen, like filings drawn to a magnet. His glance struggled to the soda fountain. What he saw there shook him to the core of his being. The girl, who was drinking a Coke, had the glass to her lips, but apparently she wasn't sipping the liquid. Her boyfriend's glass was on the counter. He had drawn a cigarette and exhaled the grey smoke. That smoke hung in the air like a large, elongated balloon, with the small end disappearing between his lips. While Miller stared, the smoke did not stir "'in the slightest. "'There was something unholy, "'something supernatural about this scene. "'With apprehension rippling down his spine, "'Dave Miller reached across the cash register "'and touched the woman on the cheek. "'The flesh was warm, but as hard as flint. "'Tentatively, the young druggist pushed harder, "'finally shoved with all his might.' For all the result, the woman might have been a two-ton bronze statue. She neither budged nor changed expressions. Panic seized Miller. His voice hit a high hysterical tenor as he called to his soda-jerker. Pete? Pete? he shouted. What in God's name is wrong here? The blonde youngster, with a towel wadded in a glass, did not stir. Miller rushed from the back of the store, seized the boy by the shoulders, tried to shake him. But Pete was rooted to the spot. Miller knew now that what was wrong was something greater than a hallucination or a hangover. He was in some kind of trap. His first thought was to rush home and see if Helen was there. There was a great sense of relief when he thought of her. Helen, with her grave blue eyes and understanding manner, would listen to him and know what was the matter. He left the haunted drugstore at a run, darted around a corner and up the street to his car, but though he had not locked the car, the door resisted his twisting grasp. Shaking, pounding, swearing, Miller wrestled with each of the doors. Abruptly he stiffened as a horrible thought leaped into his being. His gaze left the car and wandered up the street. Past the intersection, past the one beyond that, "'up on the thoroughfare until the gray haze of the city dimmed everything. "'And as far as Dave Miller could see, there was no trace of motion. "'Cars were poised in the street, some passing other machines, some turning corners. "'A streetcar stood in a safety zone. "'A man who had leaped from the bottom step hung in space a foot above the pavement. "'Pedestrians paused with one foot up. "'A bird hovered above a telephone pole Its wings glued to the blue vault of the sky. With a choked sound, Miller began to run. He did not slacken his pace for fifteen minutes until around him were the familiar, reassuring trees and shrub-bordered houses of his own street. But yet, how strange to him! The season was autumn, and the air filled with brown and golden leaves that tossed on a frozen wind. Miller ran by two boys lying on a lawn, petrified into a modern counterpart of the sculptors, the wrestlers. The sweetish tang of burning leaves brought a thrill of terror to him, for, looking down an alley from whence the smoke drifted, he saw a man tending a fire whose leaping flames were red tongues that did not move. Sobbing with relief, the young druggist darted up his own walk, He tried the front door, found it locked, and jammed a thumb against the doorbell. But of course, the little metal button was as immovable as a mountain. So in the end, after convincing himself that the key could not be inserted into the lock, he sprang toward the back. The screen door was not latched, but it might as well have been the steel door of a bank vault. Miller began to pound on it, shouting, Helen! Helen, are you in there? My God, there is something wrong. You've got to... The silence that flowed in again when his voice choked off was the dead stillness of the tomb. He could hear his voice rustling through the empty rooms, and at last it came back to him like a taunt. Helen! Helen! Helen." Helen. Chapter 2 Time Stands Still For Dave Miller... The world was now a planet of death on which he alone lived and moved and spoke. Staggered, utterly beaten, he made no attempt to break into his home. But he did stumble around the kitchen window and try to peer in, anxious to see if there was a body on the floor. The room was in semi-darkness, however, and his straining eyes could make out nothing. He returned to the front of the house, shambling like a somnambulist. Seated on the porch steps, head in hands, he slipped into a hell of regrets. He knew now that his suicide had been no hallucination. He was dead, all right, and this must be hell or purgatory. Bitterly, he cursed his drinking that had led him to such a mad thing as suicide. Suicide! He, Dave Miller a coward who had taken his own life. Miller's whole being crawled with a revulsion. If he had just the last year of his life to live over again, he thought fervently. And yet, through it all, some inner strain kept trying to tell him he was not dead. This was his own world, all right, and essentially unchanged. What had happened to it was beyond the pale of mere guesswork but this one thing began to be clear. This was a world in which change or motion of any kind was a foreigner. Fire would not burn and smoke did not rise. Doors would not open. Liquids were solids. Miller's stubbing toe could not move a pebble, and a blade of grass easily supported his weight without bending. In other words, Miller began to understand change had been stopped as surely as if a master hand had put a finger on the world's balance wheel. Miller's ramblings were terminated by the consciousness that he had an acute headache. His mouth tasted, as Herman used to say after a bad night, as if an army had camped in it. Coffee and a bromo were what he needed. But it was a great awakening to him when he found a restaurant and learned that he could neither drink the coffee nor get the lid off the bromo bottle. Fragrant coffee steam hung over the glass percolator, but even this steam was as a brick wall to his probing touch. Miller started gloomily to thread his way through the waiters and back of the counter again. Moments later, he stood in the street, and there were tears swimming in his eyes. <sighs> Helen! And... His voice was a pleading whisper. Helen, honey, where are you? There was no answer but the pitiful palpitation of utter silence. And then, there was a movement at Dave Miller's right. Something shot from between the parked cars and crashed against him. Something brown and hairy and soft. It knocked him down. Before he could get his breath, a red, wet tongue was licking his face and hands, and he was looking up into the face of a police dog. Frantic with joy at seeing another in such a city of death, the dog would scarcely let Miller rise. It stood up to plant big paws on his shoulders and try to lick his face. Miller laughed out loud, a laugh with a throaty catch in it. (laughs) Where did you come from, boy? he asked. (laughs) Won't they talk to you either? What's your name, boy? There was a heavy, brass-studded collar about the animal's neck, and Dave Miller read on its little nameplate, Major. (sighs) Well, Major, at least we've got company now, was Miller's sigh of relief. For a long time, he was too busy with the dog to bother about the sobbing noises. Apparently the dog failed to hear them, for he gave no sign. Miller scratched him behind the ear. What shall we do now, Major? Walk? Maybe your nose can smell out another friend for us. They had gone hardly two blocks when it came to him that there was a more useful way of spending their time the library. Half convinced that the whole trouble stemmed from his suicide shot in the head, which was conspicuously absent now, he decided that a perusal of the surgery books in the public library might yield something he could use. That way they bent their steps and were soon mounting the broad cement stairs of the building. As they went beneath the brass turnstile, the librarian caught Miller's attention with a smiling glance. He smiled back. I'm trying to find something on brain surgery, he explained. I— With a shock, then he realized he'd been talking to himself. In the next instant, Dave Miller whirled. A voice from the bookcases chuckled. If you find anything, I wish you'd let me know. I'm stumped myself. From a corner of the room came an elderly, half-bald man with tangled gray brows and a rueful smile. A pencil was balanced over his ear, and a notebook was clutched in his hand. You too, he said. I had hoped I was the only one. Miller went forward hurriedly to grip his hand. I'm afraid I'm not so unselfish, he admitted. I've been hoping for two hours that I'd run into some other poor soul. Quite understandable, the stranger murmured sympathetically. But in my case, it is different. You see, I am responsible for this whole tragic business. You? Dave Miller gulped a word. I, I thought... The man wagged his head, staring at his notepad, which was littered with jumbled calculations. Miller had a chance to study him. He was tall, heavy-built, with wide, sturdy shoulders despite his sixty years. Oddly, he wore a gray-green smock. His eyes, narrowed and intent, looked gimlet-sharp beneath those toothbrush brows of his as he stared at the pad. There's the trouble, right there, he muttered. I've provided only three stages of amplification, whereas four would have been barely enough. No wonder the phase didn't carry through. I guess I don't follow you, Miller faltered. You mean something you did? I should think it was something I did. The baldish stranger scratched his head with the tip of his pencil. I'm John Erickson, you know, the Wanamaker Institute. Miller said, "'Oh,' in an understanding voice. Erickson was head of Wanamaker Institute, first laboratory of them all when it came to exploding atoms and blazing trails into the wilderness of science. Erickson's piercing eyes were suddenly boring into the younger man. "'You've been sick, haven't you?' he demanded. "'Well, no, not really sick,' the druggist colored. I'll have to admit to being drunk a few hours ago, though. Drunk? Erickson stuck his tongue in his cheek, shook his head, scowled. No, that would hardly do it. There must have been something else. The impulser isn't that powerful. I can understand about the dog, poor fellow. He must have been run over, and I caught him just at the instant of passing from life to death. Oh... Dave Miller lifted his head, knowing now what Erickson was driving at. "'Well, I may as well be frank. I'm—I committed suicide. That's how drunk I was. There hasn't been a suicide in the Miller family in centuries. It took a skinful of liquor to set the precedent,' Erickson nodded wisely. "'Perhaps we will find the precedent hasn't really been set. But no matter.' "'His lifted hand stopped Miller's eager, wondering exclamation. "'The point is, young man, we three are in a tough spot, "'and it's up to us to get out of it. "'And not only we, but heaven knows how many others the world over. "'Would you—' "'Maybe you can explain to my lay mind what's happened,' Miller suggested. "'Of course. Forgive me. "'You see, Mr. Miller—'
2: Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
4: I have a feeling we're going to be pretty well acquainted before this is over. You see, Dave, I'm a nut on so called time theories. I've seen time compared to everything, from an entity to a long pink worm. But I disagree with them all because they postulate the idea that time is constantly being manufactured. Such reasoning is fantastic. Time exists, not as an ever-growing chain of links, because such a chain would have to have a tail end if it has a front end, and who can imagine the period when time did not exist? So I think time is like a circular train track, unending We who live and die merely travel around on it. The future exists simultaneously with the past for one instant when they meet. Miller's brain was humming. Erickson shot the words at him staccato fashion, as if they were things known from the great Primer days. The young druggist scratched his head. "Uh, "'You've got me licked,' he admitted. "'I'm a stranger here myself.' Naturally. You can't be expected to understand things I've been all my life puzzling about. Simplest way I can explain it is that we are on a train following this immense circular railway. When the train reaches the point where it started, it is about to plunge into the past. But that is impossible, because the point where it started is simply the caboose of the train, and that point is always ahead and behind the time train. Now, my idea was that with the proper stimulus, a man could be thrust across the diameter of this circular railway to a point in the past. Because of the nature of time, he could neither go ahead of the train to meet the future, nor could he stand still and let the caboose catch up with him. But he could detour across the circle and land farther back on the train. And that, my dear Dave... Is what you and I and Major have done. Almost. Almost? Miller said hoarsely. Erickson pursed his lips. We are somewhere part way across the space between present and past. We are living in an instant that can move neither forward nor back. You and I, Dave, and Major, and the Lord knows how many others the world over have been thrust by my time impulser onto a timeless beach of eternity. We've been caught in time's backwash. (laughs) Castaways, you might say. An objection clamored for attention in Miller's mind. But if this is so, where are the rest of them? Where's my wife? They're right here, Erickson explained. No doubt you could see your wife if you could find her. We see them as statues because, for us, time no longer exists. But there was something I did not count on. I did not know that it would be possible to live in one small instant of time as we're doing. And I did not know that only those who are hovering between life and death can deviate from the normal process of time. You mean we're dead? Miller's voice was a bitter monotone. "'Obviously not. We're talking and moving, aren't we? "'But we're on the fence. "'When I gave my impulsor the jolt of high power, "'it went wrong, and I think something must have happened to me "'at the same instant you had shot yourself. "'Perhaps, Dave, you are dying. "'The only way for us to find out is to try to get the machine working "'and topple ourselves one way or the other.' If we fall back, we all live. If we fall into the present, we may die. Either way, it's better than this, Miller said fervently. I came here to the library hoping to find out the things I must know. My own books are locked in my study, and these, they might as well be cemented in their places for all their use to me. I suppose we might as well go back to the lab. Miller nodded, murmuring, Maybe you'll get an idea when you look at the machine again. (sighs) Let's hope so, said Erickson grimly. God knows I've failed so far. Chapter 3. Splendid Sacrifice It was a solid hour's walk out to West Wilshire, where the laboratory was. The immense bronze and glass doors of the Wanamaker Institute were closed, and so barred to the two men but Erickson led the way down the side. We can get into a service door, then we can climb through the transoms and ventilators until we get to my lab. Major frisked along beside them. He was enjoying the action and the companionship. It was less of an adventure to Miller, who knew death might be ahead for the three of them. Two workmen were moving a heavy cabinet in the side service door. To get in, They climbed up on the back of the rear workman, walked across the cabinet, and scaled down the front of the leading man. They went up the stairs to the fifteenth floor. Here, they crawled through a transom into the wing marked, Experimental. Enter only by appointment. Major was helped through it. Then, they were crawling along the dark metal tunnel of an air-conditioning ventilator. It was small, and took some wriggling. In the next room, they were confronted by a stern receptionist on whose desk was a little brass sign reading, Have you an appointment? Miller had had his share of experience with receptionist's ways in his days as a pharmaceutical salesman. He took the greatest pleasure now in lighting his cigarette from a match struck on the girl's nose. Then he blew the smoke in her face and hastened, to crawl through the final transom. John Erickson's laboratory was well-lighted by a glass brick wall and a huge skylight. The sun's rays glinted on the time impulsor. The scientist explained the impulsor in concise terms. When he had finished, Dave Miller knew just as little as before, and the outfit still resembled three transformers in a line of the type he had seen on power poles connected to a great bronze globe hanging from the ceiling. "'There's the monster that put us in this plight,' Erickson grunted. "'Too strong to be legal, too weak to do the job right. "'Take a good look.' With his hands jammed in his pocket, he frowned at the complex machinery. Miller stared a few moments, then transferred his interest to other things in the room." He was immediately struck by the resemblance of a Transformer in a far corner to the ones linked up with the Impulsor. What's that? he asked quickly. Looks the same as the ones you used over there. It is. But didn't you say all you needed was another stage of power? That's right. Maybe I'm crazy. Miller stared from Impulsor to Transformer and back again. Why don't you use it, then? Using what for the connection? Erickson's eyes gently mocked him. Wire, of course. The scientist jerked a thumb at a small bale of heavy copper wire. Bring it over, and we'll try it. Miller was halfway to it when he brought up short. Then a sheepish grin spread over his features. (laughs) I get it that bale of wire might be the Empire's state building as far as we're concerned. Forgive my stupidity. Erickson suddenly became serious. I'd like to be optimistic, Dave, he muttered. But in all fairness to you, I must tell you, I see no way out of this. The machine is, of course, still working. And with that extra stage of power, the uncertainty would be over. But where in this world of immovable things will we find a piece of wire 25 feet long? There was a warm, moist sensation against Miller's hand, and when he looked down, Major stared up at him, commiseratingly. Miller scratched him behind the ear, and the dog closed his eyes, reassured and happy. The young druggist sighed, wishing that there were some giant hand to scratch him behind the ear and smooth his troubles over. (sighs) and if we don't get out, he said soberly, we'll starve, I suppose. No, I don't think it will be that quick. I haven't felt any hunger, and I don't expect to. After all, our bodies are still living in one instant of time, and a man can't work up a healthy appetite in one second. Of course, this elastic second business precludes the possibility of disease. Our bodies must go on unchanged. The only hope I see is... When we were on the verge of madness, suicide. That means jumping off a bridge, I suppose. Poison, guns, knives, all the usual wherewithal are denied to us. Black despair closed down on Dave Miller. He thrust it back, forcing a crooked grin. Let's make a bargain, he offered. When we finish fooling around with this apparatus, we split up. "'We'll only be at each other's throats if we stick together. "'I'll be blaming you for my plight, and I don't want to. "'It's my fault as much as yours. "'How about it?' "'John Erickson gripped his hand. "'You're all right, Dave. "'Let me give you some advice. "'If ever you do get back to the present, "'keep away from liquor. "'Liquor and the Irish never did mix. "'You'll have that store on its feet again in no time. "'Thanks.' Miller said fervently. And I think I can promise that nothing less than a whiskey antidote for a snake bite will ever make me bend an elbow again. For the next couple of hours, despondency reigned in the laboratory, but it was soon to be deposed again by hope. Despite all of Erickson's scientific training, it was Dave Miller himself who grasped the down-to-earth idea that started them hoping again. He was walking about the lab, jingling keys in his pocket. When he suddenly stopped short, he jerked the ring of keys into his hand. Erickson, he gasped. We've been blind. Look at this. The scientist looked, but he remained puzzled. Well, he asked skeptically. There's our wire, Dave Miller exclaimed. You've got keys. I've got keys. We've got coins, knives, wristwatches we can lay them all end to end. Erickson's features looked as if they'd been electrically shocked. You've hit it, he cried, if we've got enough. With one accord, they began emptying their pockets, tearing off wristwatches, searching for pencils. The finds made a little heap in the middle of the floor. Erickson let his long fingers claw through thinning hair. God, give us enough. We'll only need one wire. The thing is plugged in already, and only one positive pole has to be connected to the globe. Come on. Scooping up the assortment of metal articles, they rushed across the room. With his pocket knife, Dave Miller began breaking up the metal wristwatch strap, opening the links out so that they could be laid end to end for the greatest possible length. They patiently broke the watches to pieces, and of the junk they garnered made a ragged foot and a half of wire Their coins stretched the line still further. They had ten feet covered before the stuff was half used up. Their metal pencils taken apart gave them a good two feet. Keychains helped generously. With eighteen feet covered, their progress began to slow down. Perspiration poured down Miller's face. Desperately, he tore off his lodging and cut it in two to pound it flat. From garters and suspenders... They went a few inches more, and then they stopped, feet from their goal. Miller groaned. He tossed his pocket knife in his hand. We can get a foot out of this, he estimated, but that still leaves us way short. Abruptly, Erickson snapped his fingers. Shoes, he gasped. They're full of nails. Get to work with that knife, Dave. We'll cut out every one of them. In ten minutes, the shoes were reduced to ragged piles of tattered leather. Erickson's deft fingers painstakingly placed the nails one by one in the line. The distance left to cover was less than six inches. He lined up the last few nails. Both men were sinking back on their heels. As they saw, there was a gap of three inches to cover. Beaten, Erickson ground out. By three inches. Three inches from the present. And yet, it might as well be a million miles. Miller's body felt as though it were in a vice. His muscles ached with strain. So taut were his nerves that he leaped as though stung when Major nuzzled a cool nose against his hand again. Automatically, he began to stroke the dog's neck. Well, that licks us, he muttered. There isn't another piece of movable metal in the world. Major kept whimpering and pushing against him. Annoyed, the druggist shoved him away. Go away, he muttered. I don't feel like... Suddenly, then his eyes widened as his touch encountered warm metal. He whirled. There it is, he yelled. The last link. The nameplate on Major's collar. In a flash, he had torn the little rectangular brass plate from the dog's collar. Erickson took it from his grasp. Sweat stood shiny on his skin. He held the bit of metal over the gap between the wire and pole. This is it, he smiled brittily. We're on our way, Dave. Where, I don't know. To death or back to life. But we're going. The metal clinked into place. Live, writhing power leaped through the wire, snarling across partial brakes. The transformers began to hum. The humming grew louder. Singing softly, the bronze globe over their heads glowed green. Dave Miller felt a curious lightness. There was a snap in his brain. And Erickson, Major, and the laboratory faded from his senses. Then came an interval when the only sound was the soft sobbing he had been hearing as if in a dream, that and blackness that enfolded him like soft velvet. Then Miller was opening his eyes to see the familiar walls of his own kitchen around him. Someone cried out, Dave, oh Dave, dear. It was Helen's voice, and it was Helen who cradled his head in her lap and bent her face close to his, oh, thank God that you're alive, Helen Miller murmured, What are you doing here? I couldn't go through with it. i-i just couldn't leave you. I came back and-and I heard the shot and ran in. The doctor should be here. I called him five minutes ago. five minutes. How long has it been since I shot myself? Oh, just six or seven minutes. I called the doctor right away. Miller took a deep breath. Then it must have been a dream. All that to happen in a few minutes? It wasn't possible. How could I have botched the job? He muttered. I wasn't drunk enough to miss myself completely. Helen looked at the huge revolver lying in the sink. Oh, that old forty-five of Grandfather's. It hasn't been loaded since the Civil War. I guess the powder got damp or something. It just sort of sputtered instead of exploding properly. Dave, promise me something. You won't ever do anything like this again if I promise not to nag you. Dave Miller closed his eyes. There won't be any need to nag, Helen. Some people take a lot of teaching, but I've had my lesson. I've got ideas about the store which I've been too lazy to try out. You know, I feel more like fighting now than I have for years. We'll lick them, won't we, honey? Helen buried her face in the hollow of his shoulder and cried softly. Her words were too muffled to be intelligible, but Dave Miller understood what she meant. He had thought the whole thing a dream. John Erickson, the time impulsor and major. But that night, he read an item in the Evening Courier that was to keep him thinking for many days. Police investigate death of scientist here in laboratory. John M. Erickson, director of the Wanamaker Institute, died at his work last night. Erickson was a beloved and valuable figure in the world of science, famous for his recently publicized time-lapse theory. Two strange circumstances surrounded his death. One was the presence of a German shepherd dog in the laboratory, its head crushed, as if with a sledgehammer. The other was a chain of small metal objects stretching from one corner of the room to the other, as if intended to take the place of a wire in a circuit. Police, however, discount this idea. As there was a roll of wire only a few feet from the body. There you go.
3: Don't forget, copyright is any boogers who wants it. Jeff, thank you so much for that. And uh, my hey, who was that guy who introduced this story? What a disgrace! A disgrace to the science fiction community. That's what it is. So, next up is our first chapter, and it's by Dennis Lane, as I say. Dennis is film talk, fictioner, all round good guy. He lives in, down in Pretoria, South Africa as well. Dennis! Hello again,
1: from the Jacaranda City. This week, I'm not bringing you an old movie review. Instead, I'm giving you a peek into my latest book, The Pouring Dark, 60 Excursions Across the Multiverse which is available in both paperback and ebook form. As the subtitle suggests, there are sixty tales, twelve short stories, twenty four poems, some of which you will have heard here and on Tales to Terrify, and twenty four flash fictions. The tales range from steampunk fantasy through a near future police state, to time travelling Joeberg academics and far future galaxy spanning empires. Rather than too much explanation. Let me just get straight into a taster of the first story. More information on The Pouring Dark can be found at the Terran Dream Archive site. Also, the whole of this story is available as part of the free sample download of the first 20% of the book. Just follow the link that Tony will put up on the site. Mechanicals in the Midsummer Wood, or The Case of the Vanishing Prince. The Royal Mail Ship Cornwall steamed into the Greek port of Piraeus at precisely noon on the 30th day of March, the year of our Lord, 1896. It was late spring and the Aegean heat was already starting to make itself apparent. The observation deck of the ship was crowded with passengers craning to get their first look at the city, their excitement evident. A little to one side of the crowd, stood a more restrained figure, observing the scene as he drew upon his pipe. It was Joseph Bell, fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, considering the extensive changes to the skyline that had occurred in the three decades since his last visit to Athens. The ship's foghorn warbled and boomed a greeting to the crowds waiting on shore, and the excitement of the passengers rose. Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle, walked up to his mentor and friend of almost twenty years, his tropical suit of cream linen damp with perspiration. "'So, Bell, how does it feel to return to the scene of your first case?' "'To be perfectly frank, my dear Doyle, I had not even considered it. "'I was but a young man, and my part in foiling the assassination attempt on Queen Amalia "'was always more one of accident rather than design.' As she and King Otto went into exile a year later, my involvement has largely been forgotten. You are too modest, Bell. 'Tis a good thing that I am, smiled Bell. There is quite enough trumpet blowing already with you publishing my various cases. In fact, what I was contemplating was the upcoming spectacle the mechanical games will be my first opportunity to see the latest designs tested in the fire of competition. It is said that the British team contains over thirty of the mechanical men and that they each have subtle differences in their construction to enable them to excel at particular sports. As the two friends shared their thoughts on the possible enhancements to mechanical design that they would see, the ship edged its way to the quayside and after interminable toing and froing by the port workers, the gangway was fixed in place and passengers were allowed to disembark. The gentlemen travellers had ensured that a two-bedroom suite had been reserved at the Grand Bretagne, and so did not need to participate in the scramble to leave the ship. Reservations were essential, as, even six months before the Games, hotel rooms had started to disappear in anticipation of this inaugural mechanical Olympiad. Once the first press of people had disembarked and had been carried away by the touts of those few hotels with vacant rooms, Bell and Doyle strolled down the gangway and Bell signaled to one of the waiting steam broughams. The driver pulled up and offed his cap to the Scot. The Grand Bretagne, if you please. But take the scenic route. My companion is new to Athens. The driver nodded, pleased to have been given the license to go a few extra miles it made a pleasant change for him not to have to gouge his passengers. The two gentlemen watched as porters stowed their portmanteaus in the boot of the brougham, and then they settled themselves inside. The city of Athens had grown considerably since Bell's previous visit. In 1861 he had been just twenty-four years old and unknown, but his role in foiling the assassination attempted by Aristides Dosios had changed all that and he had been lucky enough to make the acquaintance of many of those charged with the construction of the new capital. At that time, Athens had been a massive building site, the capital of a recently independent Greece that was being built upon the ruins of the timeless city. Now the great steam cranes had disappeared from the ancient site, and the construction had moved to the burgeoning suburbs. As the Brougham passed through the bustling city, the signs of the coming competition were everywhere. Bunting had been strung across the thoroughfares, signs proclaiming, Athens welcomes the mechanicals, seemed to be pasted upon the walls of almost every building. And, under the afternoon sun, the city was gleaming, bringing to mind the heroic structures of classical Athens. As they rode, Bell gave a running commentary pointing out the neoclassical buildings designed by his old acquaintances, Ernst Ziller and the Baron von Hansen. The Brougham passed by the newly refurbished Panathenaiko Stadium, with its statue of a mechanical hurling a discus, and, after enabling Doyle to gain his bearings somewhat, they made a final circuit of Syntagma Square and pulled up in front of the luxurious hotel. As one of the most expensive hotels on the Aegean, the Grande Bretagne was staffed completely by mechanicals. Only the most exclusive of establishments could afford to employ so many and this service featured heavily in the hotel's advertisements. As the two men alighted from their transport, a mechanical porter stepped up to the Brougham, lifted out both portmanteaus with not a sign of effort on his brass face, and followed them up the steps into the hotel. Once inside, Bell and Doyle were ushered across the gleaming reception area with the deference due to science of the British Empire, and soon they were taking their ease in the refreshing coolness of their suite. That evening, the friends ventured down to the hotel restaurant, having decided to postpone further exploration until the morrow. They sat to one corner, as was Bell's custom, and as they waited for the lamb Giovezi to be served, the senior of the two once again demonstrated his observational powers to his friend. "'See there, Doyle!' Bell nodded towards the figure of a retired colonel, resplendent in waxed mustachios and sporting an impressive array of ribbons. Yes, what of him, Bell? He is not what he seems. In fact, not only is his rank completely bogus, I would wager that he had never even served in India. You don't say. But he looks the very picture of a retired colonel of the Raj. At first glance, maybe. But observe. Item one. Bell raised a finger. His ribbons. According to the story laid out by their colorful ranks, he served with distinction in both Jar and Shorapur during the Sepoy Mutiny. As the two states are at least 1,000 miles removed, I find that hard to believe. Possible, but highly unlikely. Item two. The second finger joined the first. His mustache. Note the way that each branch bifurcates and is waxed. The style was very common with dirigible pilots during the first years of their operation as munitions platforms, but it is very unlikely that an infantryman would sport such a style. Item number three. Bell counted off a third finger. Observe his artificial hand. It is of a style used by the Hospitaller Order of St. Lazarus of Jerusalem. That appendage was never constructed by a surgeon of the Empire. Bell took a sip of his drink and sat back with satisfaction. And so, I have no doubt at all that that gentleman is a career confidence artist, one who came a cropper in the lands of the Turk, leading to the amputation of a hand for his crimes. Astonishing! Actually, if one is observant, it is quite elementary, my dear Doyle. Well, I for one will be informing the management to keep a close eye on the counterfeit colonel. The remainder of their repast was enjoyed without incident. Whatever else Bell may have observed of his fellow guests, he kept to himself. After a very satisfying evening, the two friends, relaxed and replete, retired to their rooms. March thirty first, eighteen ninety six. The next morning, just before dawn, Bell and Doyle breakfasted in their suite, a passable kedgery and some devilishly hot kidneys. As they prepared themselves for an early morning excursion to the nearby Acropolis, there was a knock on the door. Doyle opened it to find a mechanical bellboy, silver tray extended. Doyle took the letter presented upon the tray and, after rummaging in his pockets, deposited in its place a few drachma of unknown denomination. Returning to the lounge, he handed the envelope to Bell, to whom the missive was addressed, who cracked the wax seal and unfolded the letter. "'It is addressed from the Chamberlain to the Rajah Jaisal Singh, who is here for the games,' remarked Bell. "'And what does he have to say for himself?' asked Doyle. "'Grave news. The Rajah's son, Mangal Singh, has been abducted.' "'The devil, you say?' "'Indeed.' And it seems that there were no clues. There
3: you go. Put a link on to that. I put a link on to everything that's been in the show as well. So please do pop over to the show. And don't forget, you know, the Joe Haldeman. It is now only a couple of weeks until Joe Haldeman talks about his science fiction life. You know, writing. I guess, the, the forever war and, you know, growing up in them, kind of the wake of these kind of extraordinary guys, you know, Heinlein and uh, Heinlein and everything like that. And, you know, right now. So that would be fantastic. if You just pop over there and have a listen to that. That would be great. Now, just before I goes well, I just want to kind of mention over on, you know, UK TV, on our, uh, one of the, the channels out there, we've got Dave TV and Dave has took on, the task of producing series 10 of Red Dwarf. And, you know, it was a kind of BBC, you know, science fiction comedy thing, which just, in t- well, in its heyday when it came out, you know, myself, Kieran, all my friends, just, you know, obsessed with Red Dwarf. It was just like a breath of fresh air. And we just loved it. And, you know, I can just put on a DVD and watch Red Dwarf over and over and over again. Well, it, like see, another channel now, I think it's all kind of linked with the BBC somewhere down the line. Or, you know, the, the BBC, they pay the BBC to, to run programmes and everything like that. But anyways, Series 10 of Red Dwarf came out. And, you know, I think they've produced the last one as well. But I think it might have been Series 8 or 9. It just started to go a little bit pear-shaped for Red Dwarf. You know, it was just, it just wasn't the, what it started out to be. It just didn't even have, you know, aesthetically the feel of it, you know. But tens come along, and if anyone's watching Red Dwarf, you know, I just it's just hitting every nail on every head that's sticking up at the minute for me. It's just, you know, basically them again, you know, the four main characters: Dave Lister, Arnold Rimmer, Crichton, and the Cat, in a very small environment, and that's what works so well, you know. The comedy is like, and it. it it's funny as anything, you know what I mean? I, it's just I don't know if anyone watched the last week's where Rimus <laughs> R- 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 asking, getting like the making up this computer, you know, this kind of the new computer, and he's you know, Crichton's asking him what kind of personality, what kind of body features, you know, you've got to watch that scene to be quite honest, fantastic. So I would, I would love to hear if anybody is watching the Red Dwarf. What the thing of it, campaign? If you've kind of watched the the early shows, you know, because I'm so reminded of the early shows of Red Dwarf, and it's that's what exactly what happened. It was that's why I liked it, and, and it it seems to be recreating these perfectly. Do you know what I mean? And yes, they're a slightly older. There's a lot of grey hair getting in there now and rink a lot more wrinkles and everything. But it's you're probably talking about 20 years ago since it kind of was aired, you know. So. People, people age. Tell us about it. So, I is liking the new Red Dwarf. If anyone's watched it, you know, drop us a line. And drop us a line if you're into coffee as well. I'm still interested to find out everyone who's interested in coffee. You know, that's I'm such a passion at the minute. I've much to my wife's disgust to got myself a nice big, <laughs> another big the espresso. Proper like coffee, you size machine and a grinder there and I'm grinding these fresh coffee beans and it's just two of my wife's head in. There's coffee grinds everywhere. But if you're into coffee and you love coffee as much as I do, drop us a line and thank you everyone who's kinda of mentioned coffee as well who's get back to us on coffee. That's just you know, Huey thank you so much. And Matthew, who, you know, to the end, end of the world, you know, end of the world, opposite ends of the world in Australia, they've got his own coffee shop and Matt's just been dropping some emails just, you know, explaining a bit about coffee and, you know, coffee with, you know, blends, there's me, there's me forward, <laughs> coffee with, you know, different blends to make up an espresso or like a single origin. Oh, yes, I'm into all that. <laughs> so if you like coffee and everything like that, it's funny because... Oh, three years ago, I was going to set up a podcast. I had even the logo designed and everything just to do coffee, you know, like talk about coffee. And so you never know, might come off. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
4: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal?
1: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting and storm and initiated. Shuttle set for wash. Here will be opened in three, two, one.